Hi, I'm Matthew McCabe. Welcome to Miracle Voices. Each episode, my co-host Judy Scutch Whitson and I will be delving into stories of forgiveness, healing, and transformation that have come about from integrating the principles of the book A Course in Miracles. If you want to learn more about A Course in Miracles, visit www.acim.org. If you'd like to visit Miracle Voices site, please go to www.miraclevoices.org. Now here's your program. Judy, welcome to the show. Hello there, Matt, and how are you today? Doing doing great. How about you? The same. Good. We're on the same plane already. Good. <laughs> Good. Well, I understand we have another forgiveness story. There's no shortage of forgiveness stories in this world. Please tell us about Bridget Winter. It sounds like that's a long-term difficult relationship. And what happened there? Yeah, well, you know, when you live a long time, you'll find out there are no shortages of stories <laughs> when you're studying A Course in Miracles. In fact, you could expect them every day or even more. Anyway, this, this is a particularly challenging one for me to talk about because uh, of my own guilty, quote, unquote, role in it and the feelings that it engendered for so many years, uh, both wonderful feelings and deep friendship and craziness and hatred. So I am just going to start out how I met this wonderful woman named Bridget Winter, who just passed away about less than a year ago now. Um, First of all, Bridget was British, uh, was a child in the Second World War. She and her five siblings and parents lived in an air raid shelter for four years, their own that they made on their own property, Uh, had extraordinary stories to tell. And I met her before I met her. And what do I mean by that? A gentleman called me from Canada who knew that I was teaching at New York University a subject called experimental parapsychology. Uh, He named it Things That Go Bump in the Night, and he wanted to do a film. And he, he felt that since I was teaching the subject, I must know a lot of interesting people in it who might be willing to be filmed. And it did actually happen that way. And so we became good friends, and there was a lot of trust between us. About a year after I met him and the film was out, I got a call from a woman in England who said she was coming to the United States. Uh, She was about to make a film. She had been with the BBC for 23 years and still was as a producer, director. In those days, they were virtually, no, they were not virtually. She was the only woman connected with the BBC in that capacity. So she was quite a trailblazer, a very beautiful blonde woman with a great deal of presence. Uh, She's the kind of woman that you could fantasize, oh, I wish that I lived that life sometime, or I wish I could live parts of her life because she was meeting all very well-known and interesting people. She traveled all over the world to do shows for the BBC. Um, And she called me and she gave me a little bit of her background and she was obviously very uh, assured and and comfortable with herself. And she said that she had the opportunity to make a film with this man that I knew in Canada who she had met. And it was a film about Nazi Germany and it was called The Spear of Destiny. Well, I had never even heard about it. And she said, he said, if I okay it, I myself (laughs) 
put okay in making this production that he wanted to ask her to be the director and the producer. Well, that was astounding to me because what did I know about anything like that, which was really nothing. Uh, but for some reason or other, I just went ahead with it and said, I know nothing about the book, but I'll be very glad to read it, which I did. And it wasn't that I was horrified. Something inside me said, this film should not be made. And if I have a little part in it, I must say what I believe. doesn't mean anyone will listen to me. Why should they? But I felt that strongly about it. So when she next called me, I told her I had read the book and that I didn't feel that the film should be made. I had a lot of reasons why, which I gave her. And she was horrified. The next thing I knew, my friend in Canada said, did you really mean what you said? And I said, it doesn't matter what I say because I'm not an expert. You know that. He said, no, but I trust you. And I realized he was talking about something higher. He was trusting that I, that he felt that I had the insight to advise him about this. And he did not make the film. That's wow. the beginning of the story. I hadn't met her. She didn't even bother coming to the US of A. She just stewed in her own world without me even knowing about it. And she was stewing for a few years when one day her next door neighbor said to her, you know, I'm in a wheelchair and I can't go around by myself, but there's someone coming to give a talk about A Course in Miracles, actually two people, Dr. William Thetford, who was one of the two scribes who took it down, and Bridget didn't even know what a scribe was, but her next door neighbor did, and uh, someone named Judith Scutch. And Bridget said, I will take you to any place. I'll take you to heaven and back, but I will not take you to a place where that woman is. <laughs> and her, her friend was kind of astounded, and that's Bridget told the story. Anyway, she convinced Bridget in friendship to take her. It was a very rainy day, and Bill Thetford and I were Kensington Library giving a talk, one of the earliest talks in England, to a group of people who were obviously interested in hearing about A Course of Miracles. And she came in late wheeling this wheelchair and uh, she was so good looking and so sunny blonde. And it was such a rainy day that she caught my attention right away, even though was, I was on the platform. And I saw her sit in the back and uh, staring at me with angry expression. I wondered, what did she have for breakfast? In any event, when the talk was over, the friend wanted to meet us and she wheeled the friend up and Bill Thetford was talking to the friend, the neighbor, and I was. And then Bridget says, you don't know who I am, but I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm glad I don't know who you are because I don't hate you. And she actually laughed at that. And we started to talk and she reminded me who she was. And I said, oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. I should never have been put in that position because I didn't know what I was talking about. Did you ever make the film? And she said, absolutely not. Not with him or anyone else, she said. And was I furious because I thought it would make an absolute startlingly good film. Um, we talked a little while and then she said, what are you doing for lunch tomorrow? And that was the beginning of my friendship and non-friendship <laughs> with one of the most difficult and challenging and excellent relationships in my life, Bridget Winter. Um, 
we became quite close. There were many things, not that we had anything in common that I could see, but it was one of those instances where you meet someone and you just know you're going to see them again. Uh, not for any reason, but you just know you're going to. And that's the way it happened. We wrote to each other a lot. There was no email in those days. Uh, she came to visit me on a vacation and stayed with me for three weeks when I was living in California. And uh, we enjoyed each other tremendously. She was a wonderful raconteur. And I was just agape at some of the stories she would tell. But they were all true and they were all fascinating. And everyone who met her was charmed by her. So in the beginning of our relationship, I could say that it was just pure delight. Little by little, as I became much more deeply involved in the course, well, she realized, she told me much later, she had to go along with it or else lose a friendship. Now, why she thought that, I have no idea, but it is what she thought. So you could see she was dragged, kicking and screaming into the study of A Course of Miracles. And she didn't recognize it or believe in it. She was really doing it because of her relationship with me. And I didn't realize it at the time. I just knew I was delighted that Bridget was also in England studying A Course of Miracles. Uh, she didn't go to groups or anything, but she did keep up with her text, and we did do lessons together. So there was this bond that we now had also about the course. And one day she called me, and I was really surprised because what she said is, I am taking a two-year sabbatical from the Beeb. That's what she called the BBC. Most people there did. From the Beeb, uh, because I want to come over and stay in the United States with you or near you. And I want to do a film on the course. Bill Thetford, who had become a very good friend of hers, is still very much alive. And Helen is now gone. And there has to be a first person uh, telling of the story of the course, because who could possibly believe it? And with alacrity, I accepted. I had no idea what this would cost, because was she going to work for nothing? And what was going to happen here? Well, she did come. And <laughs> I'm almost ashamed to tell this story, but I'm going to tell it. Um, she said that she was volunteering her time. This is what she wanted to do for the next two years. And of course, I was very grateful. But what she couldn't volunteer was the crew. And having a film crew, well, you know, it would cost a lot of money. I didn't know what to do. I certainly wasn't saying, go home, I don't have the money. And I was lying in bed that night and I was thinking, Holy Spirit, if this is something that you want, you're going to make it happen. And the next day, I was cleaning under my bed, which I hadn't done for a little while with a vacuum cleaner. And up comes this letter unopened. It looked like it was sitting there for about three months. It had fallen off my bed probably when I was looking at mail. And there was this letter unopened. And I opened it up and it was a check anonymously for $50,000. <laughs> so, well, it looks like we're going to make this film. I had no idea how much it would cost. But in those days, we go back to 1982, 50000 was a little different than it is now. And sure enough, it did actually pay for what we needed. So we were off and running. And uh, Bridget really put her heart and soul into this film. 
Uh, some of you may have seen it. It's called The Story of A Course in Miracles. Um, and it's in two parts, but the first part is the actual story and the interview with Bill Fetton. The second is with people who in those days, very early on, were studying the course. And we had some wonderful times together. It wasn't two solid years. You know, it was filming and going back and doing editing and coming back. When the final edit was ready, there were five hours of film. And Bridges said, you and Bill Thetford must come to London. And it's only there that I'll do the editing because this is a crew that I've worked with for years and they're willing to do it with me. So we spent three years editing that film. I'm giving you all this background because then you can understand really the impact of this story that I'm telling about forgiveness. We had many tiffs along the way, but none of them terrible. Differences of opinion. I would say she was a much stronger personality than I. If I saw an argument coming, I would usually run the other way. She would meet it head on. <laughs> but we did deeply care for each other. Um, Time went by, the film was issued. We had problems over that. At one point, she even thought of bringing a lawsuit against us. Tell the truth, I can't even remember why. Probably ownership. In this country, we owned the film. In our country, they said she did. But we, we resolved it, so it became 50-50. We had a lot, of, a lot of challenges, not just I did, but the foundation, with this one woman. Uh, but we still cared for her deeply and honored her. And as she started to get older, things started to happen. I think she had a very minor stroke and didn't realize it. And she's living alone and family she didn't see very often, uh, didn't realize it. And when I talked to her on the phone, the way I realized, I didn't think something happened to her, but I realized she was getting very bitter towards me. And it didn't matter what I said or even try to change the subject. She was really carrying a grudge and she wouldn't tell me about what. So you could imagine how often I wanted to talk to her. Zero. Right. And of course, it caused a lot of guilt in me. Here's my friend. Not only that, a person who's done so much for us. And I really don't want to talk to her on the phone anymore. Sometimes those phone calls would go on for an hour or so. And they were just recriminations. I do think a lot of it had to do with that stroke because the way it was resolved was not in saying, oh, I had a stroke and I'm sorry, I said all those things to you, but rather through forgiveness, through me making the decision. Above all else, I want to see forgiveness in my relationship with Bridget Winter. I needed Holy Spirit. I can't really go on without it. It's too dominant in my life. I remember praying on it. It was important to me, very important. And little by little, I just kept on talking with her. And little by little, it lightened up until it was forgotten. Nothing was ever said, but that very bad spell was really forgotten. And at that point, she really did start to have episodes showing that she was finally going to die from a stroke. But she was living alone and was a very, very a self-sufficient person who was angry at God for letting her deteriorate in that way. And then it became God's fault, and that would be our conversation. And I would try to do my best, uh, but wasn't good enough. She was just 
overwhelmed as she said she was gobsmacked that she would have her later life be in such a state of, well, she called it an insufficiency of life. She had to retire. Um, she didn't have many people she saw. She was almost a hermit. She did see some family members and refused to get help, refused to have anyone come into her apartment. So the place was an unbelievable mess, I was told later, and papers all over the place. And she constantly shuffling papers because too late did she decide to, to organize. And she had so many archives that would be so important and they were just lying there all over the place. And she complained to me all the time. By this time, Bridget did have a computer, although she wasn't as comfortable using it as we are here. Uh, she got a Mac because I had a Mac and there were hardly any Macs in England at the time. So she had trouble with people fixing them. And the computer, in a sense, became her enemy also. One day, it was really, really bad. And what was bad about it is that I could tell that she was deteriorating so quickly that she could definitely not be alone. She had to go someplace where they took care of her or get a private caregiver who came and lived with her. There wasn't any family member to do that. And I don't know why I thought I was responsible, but some part of me did. And I said to her, if you could have anything in the world right now, what would you want? And she said, I'd want my mind back. Well, I absolutely knew what she meant. I would too. And I said, how would you want your mind back? Because if that's the one thing that you want, we can pray on it. Do you know, up until that moment, I had never prayed with Bridget and didn't realize that she didn't pray. All of those years, all of those course discussions, they were intellectual with her. She had not used the course the way it's meant to be used. She had not accepted that she had a higher teacher, her inner guide, the Holy Spirit within her, that would help her in all of her problems, everything she had to do herself. So here she was, 86 years old and getting worse by the day health-wise, and she had not asked for help. I was gobsmacked, and I said to her, would you be willing to pray with me? Oh, she said, if you must. <laughs> so I said, well, would you be willing to? And she said, yeah, okay. So we actually formed a prayer and asked the Holy Spirit to please help Bridget in her lifestyle now so that she was feeling content and that she could get to do some of the things that she couldn't do. And when we were finished, she says, you know, of course, it's not going to happen. I didn't know anything of the kind, but I did know that we prayed sincerely. Two people asked for help together. The very next day, I got a call from a gentleman, and he said, my name is David, and went on with his last name, and he said, Bridget is, I'm at Bridget's house right now, and she wants me to tell you this story. And he said, for years, I've been a student of uh, early television, and I actually teach at the university about three blocks from Bridget's apartment. 
And I just found out through some squib and newspaper that Bridget was living three blocks away from me. And she was one of my childhood heroes. I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. And I called her right away and asked, could I come over? And she at first did not want anyone to see her the way she looked. But finally, she said, okay, when she heard what my background was and what I was teaching. He said, I was actually teaching her work in my class. So I went running over right away. He said, she'll let me say this. I'm appalled at what I see here, that a woman of her ilk should be living as if she's living on the street but she's not able to do anything anymore. And I asked her, what's the most important thing you need to do? And she said, most important thing I need to do is to organize my papers. Oh, he said, I can't imagine anything I'd like to do more than your archives, thousands of pages. I have two students in my class, they would do anything to do this with me, solved. Not only that, but he said to her, you need someone to look after you and help take care of you. He organized a cleaning crew, which he paid for, to come in and clean up her place so it was spotless. And every day he stopped by and he either brought her food or took something from my refrigerator to make for her and spent a couple of hours talking to her. And then the cherry on the Sunday, as we used to say when I was a child, he was an expert in Apple in Max, so that he could not only repair her errant machine, but he could do all her letters and everything for her. And this wonderful man, I call him the Angel David, was there when she had her final stroke and took her to an apartment, I mean to the hospital, and arranged for her to be taken care of there and actually found a place where they would look after her, where they looked after stroke patients uh, as part of the British uh, health system. Uh, but before she could get there, she died. When I think of this, of course, it touches me telling you the story very much. It reminds me so much that to forgive is merely to remember only the loving thoughts you gave in the past and those that were given you. In this situation, that particular quote from the Course, which was in the text in chapter 17, <laughs> to forgive is merely to remember only the loving thoughts you gave in the past and those that were given you, describes how Bridget and I prayed for help. We went over the wonderful days we had together, the very precious times, the work we did together. We literally forgot to include anything that was unhappy or anything that bespoke sadness, specialness, hatred, or separation. So in that prayer time, I believe we did the one and only thing that could have been done to help Bridget in her situation and to bring her awareness to remember God so that she could then ask herself, so that the miracle named David could appear so that she could die in dignity. Wow. What a beautiful story. So you, you just took her by the hand and she was able to remember 
That's amazing. That's amazing. We actually did it together, Matt. I, I was not the leader. And she was not the leader. The Holy Spirit was there. The only thing I did was be so surprised that it caught her attention that she didn't pray or add whatever we want to call it. She didn't commune with her higher self, which is what the course is all about. <laughs> and I guess I was so astounded and I knew her so well. I could say, you've got to be kidding me. Never, never. That's the only thing that I did. Because then when we both marched into the prayer time and it was like a march, <laughs> then what came up was all our love for each other all the beautiful stories we shared, that's all that came up. No, we'll do this and do that, nothing. Just we were in that place where only the loving thoughts were prominent, nothing else. And the very next day, Angel David showed up. <laughs> wow. I love it. <laughs> so... Judy, is there any other specific ways you relate that to concepts in the course for students that you can think about? Well, I would think it illustrates many of the concepts in the course. Forgiveness literally transforms vision. The things that Bridget was seeing that were unhappy for her and the way she was living and the way she was desperate for some sense of of self-worth, a person who all her life felt worthy <laughs> and all of a sudden was plunging into despair. And in that sense, forgiveness did transform her vision and it let her see the real world for a while because it reached across chaos. She was living in chaos and removing all the illusions that had twisted her perception and fixed it on the past, whether it was her anger at me or a job she didn't get or someone owed her money. I mean, you know, years and years of these things she was accumulating. Forgiveness literally transformed that vision. She never mentioned it again. She didn't live that long, but you know, we talked a lot. She never mentioned it again. It was gone, completely gone. And I don't know of a more apt description of forgiveness than that. <laughs> well, that's a great story. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Judy. That's, I think, a wonderful episode and uh, very, you know, very emotional, too. I could feel the emotion coming up as you spoke about it. So thanks for sharing that. You know, it makes me feel you want you, you want an, you want an addendum to this. You, you want a, a, a guilty addendum. <laughs> Sure, sure. <laughs> okay, you can always cut this out. <laughs> when Bridget died, it wasn't. When Bridget died, it wasn't over because I had hundreds of pictures of her and me, and pictures she had given me in other situations on our website, the Foundation for Inner Peace, www.acam.org. We have uh, a description of Bridget, a biography of her with photographs. I think she actually wrote it. So it's probably in first, first person how she came to the course. Um, it, was, it was a very important last rite, you could call it for me, 
I wasn't going to her funeral. It was at the very beginning, last March, actually, the very beginning of COVID. And so I sent about 80 pictures to a niece whose address I had, her email. And I said, I don't know if you're doing a memorial service for her or anything, but you might want to choose from some of these pictures. And then I got an invitation to my first Zoom funeral. And of course, it was in England and it was Bridget's. And so I tuned in and it was actually in a chapel and they had the coffin there. And the place was filled with friends and relatives. Some of them I never heard of. And I was really delighted that so many people showed up for Bridget's funeral and that she was so much more loved than I ever imagined. And they did a, a composite of photographs and showed it with music. And I was waiting to see my photographs. Not one of them was used. And I'm sitting there thinking, I know she got them because the niece said, thank you so much. Why wasn't one of my photographs used? I wanted some part in this ceremony and I wanted my <laughs> photographs, at least one of them got to be used. I was sitting there feeling really sorry for myself and guilty that I was feeling sorry because I know enough now, <laughs> I have no reason to be. And so I lapsed into guilt and then I just let it go. And I said, this is ridiculous. I just want to pay respects to my friend. At the very end, as the coffin was wheeling into wherever it wheeled in the next room or the crematorium or something, her young nephew got up. Well, not so young now, but I knew him when he was young. And he said, I want to read something as we say goodbye to Bridget. And he read something from the course that I had sent about death being not real. I'm sure many of the people that didn't even know what he was reading, didn't know what it was from and didn't believe it. But it sounded so beautiful. Bridget's nephew reading the course and he said, this was sent by her friend, Judy. And that was the last thing said at that funeral. I'm sorry if I'm crying now, but um, it's both for joy and also for gratitude. Uh, it goes on, everybody. It doesn't stop. It keeps on going. If you truly, truly want forgiveness to be your road to awakening, it doesn't stop because you have, again, your interior guide, your higher self, your partner, the Holy Spirit, to lead you. Thanks so much for listening today. Please subscribe to Miracle Voices by hitting the subscribe button on your podcast app. If you are enjoying these conversations, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you use. And lastly, please visit us at miraclevoices.org and join our newsletter so we can stay connected. Until the next podcast, I want to leave you with my favorite course quote, when you want only love, you will see nothing else. Nothing else.